morning. My name's Rick Whitlock. I'm one of the pastors here. And now we're in a series in the Old Testament book of Job. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Job is just left of the Psalms, so it's about uh, in the middle of the Bible. And we're going to look at part of Job chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 this morning. And we're in this series on Job. And through the story of Job, we're seeing what does it look like to become men and women who sustain our faith over the course of a lifetime, knowing that in our lifetime, we will see evil, injustice, grief, and pain, either our own or others or both. And so rather than being shipwrecked by the brokenness of the world, We are seeking to become men and women who navigate our way through the difficulties of life while at the same time enduring and even growing in our faith and trust in God. And that's no small thing. That's no easy thing. And especially because of this, there is possibly no difficulty in the whole realm of human experience so challenging as the problem of undeserved suffering. Sorrow over the loss of a loved one, prolonged sickness, tragic disasters. These are things we see in our own families and in ourselves. These are things we watch on the news day after day, and they can swallow us up. You know that feeling when your mind is baffled by struggle and when your heart is overwhelmed with grief. And we are just seeking and longing for comfort. And as Christians, uh, it's possible that if you're a believer, you're a follower of Christ, this problem might actually be even more aggravated. Not because all people don't suffer, but because we have this expectation, don't we, of God's love for us and suffering, especially undeserved suffering, something we can't seem to link back to one terrible sin or awful choice, just seems so counter to the God that we have. We look at the Lord and we can think, is he aggravated with us? Is he apparently indifferent to our pain? Does he care at all? He's silent. Is he unresponsive? We can cry out in despair with what many of the Psalms say. For example, Psalm 10, verse 1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Though God can at times feel far away in our suffering, we know that there are many, many passages like Psalm 10 and many other of the Psalms. A third of the Psalms are laments. They are people crying out in pain to God, expressing the grief or the sorrow or the frustration of their life. But Job is an entire book of that. The whole book is about this undeserved suffering. And it's Uh, And today we reach that part of the story. Last week we introduced Job. We saw his character. We saw his habit of continually seeking God, of trusting him in all things. But Job was also very wealthy and prosperous. And today we reach the part of his story where he faces undeserved suffering. He faces undeserved tragedy. So we're going to read Job 1, verse 6, and uh, up through chapter 2, verse 10. And we're going to see four different, four scenes that alternate back and forth. Heaven, earth, 
heaven and earth. They go back and forth. We see a conversation in heaven between God and Satan. We see what happens on earth because of that. We see another conversation in heaven between God and Satan. And then we see, again, what happens on earth because of that. So let's read this. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 10. Here's Job's story. Now there was a day when the sons of God, or angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, well, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have only increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that Job has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now we're on earth. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking, Job's sons and daughters, wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside him, beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with their swords. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another, and he said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on our camels and took them and struck down the servants with their swords, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon them, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now we're back in heaven. And again, there was a day when the sons of God or angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me to try to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand, touch his his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, Job is in your hand, but only spare his life. Back down on earth, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job 
with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took, Job took a piece of pottery, broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not also receive disaster? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. What we see is Job has a very bad day. In fact, he has two. And on that first day, he experiences essentially back to back to back to back a terrorist attack, a natural disaster, a terrorist attack, and another natural disaster. And as if that wasn't enough, he has another day where after he's lost everything in the terrorist attacks and the natural disasters, he then is afflicted with a terrible disease. And so even his own self is now deeply suffering. And immediately we see that Job's initial response to this personal tragedy and suffering is worship. He worships God. That is to say, Job continues to express and have confidence in God despite losing everything. Job continues to love and serve God despite losing everything. I, when I was reading this, I've read this story many times before, and yet I still get to that place where uh, when it gets to chapter 1, verse 22, uh, or verse 20, rather, when it says, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and I always want to say screamed, but it says worshiped. And the question that Job faces is the question we all face in suffering. And it's this, is it really worth loving God if God's own friends experience undeserved suffering? Because God has upheld Job as the best guy on the earth. This is someone who's personally close. We talked about this last week. Someone who has great integrity, who is personally close with God, holds fast to his faith. Job is God's friend. And yet even he is not totally protected from what Satan wants to do. And undeserved suffering forces us to three, see three things. Forces us to face grief. It forces us to face temptation, and it forces us to face God. And we're going to look at those three things because this is the question. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth still worshiping God when he doesn't seem to do what we hoped? The first thing is undeserved suffering forces us to face grief. And we'll see a lot more of this next week in Job chapter 3. We're not going to talk about how do you grieve. That's later. But what we are going to say at first is that just as many of us would ask why questions when suffering comes, when we see pain in the world, why God? Job asked those questions as well, but he doesn't start doing that till chapter 3. His initial response isn't even verbal. This is what it says in verse 20. We just read it again. Then Job arose tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and we saw later that it was in ashes, and he worshiped. This is a very common Old Testament expression for deep grief. This is a, it's a physical, tangible way. You tear your robe, it's like represents tearing open. Your heart's broken, it's torn open. You sit in dust and ashes because you literally feel that your life is crushed to the ground. 
This is what Job is, is saying. He is saying it with his actions, not merely his words. He's not even saying anything necessarily until a moment later when he says, naked I came, naked I'll leave, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But what he says first, or what he does first, is tear his robes and fall to the ground in dust and ashes. And of course, right, how could Job not be emotionally overwhelmed with grief? This wasn't just suffering in general or the news of suffering, or watching it on TV, even though that's grievous enough. This is his own personal tragedy. And it's suffering of an extraordinary kind, because even as many of us face suffering, and our world does, Job literally lost everything in a day. All of his wealth, all of his family, except for his wife. But even later on, he kind of loses her too, not to death, but because she starts to falter in her faith and says, you should just turn on God as well. Job loses everything. Job is suffering unlike almost anyone else in the world in some way. So he has, in a very short time, lost everything. And yet, we see this. It's so important to see this. Job's initial response is grieving. And there's really two things I want to point out about grieving before we get into what exactly was happening in heaven. Because we're going to get into that. How do these conversations, conversations work in heaven? We have to see this, I think. Job's initial response grieving, and two things about grieving. Grieving is not sinning. And grieving not only is not sinning, it doesn't negate worshiping. Just because you're grieving doesn't mean you can't worship. So let's start with this. Grieving is not sinning. When facing undeserved suffering, we have to face this grief because it literally says this, right? In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And also it says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 10. It is not wrong for Job to grieve. It was not wrong for him to weep uncontrollably or fall on the ground in sorrow. Sixty-eight times the Bible says that people wept, and that includes Jesus. The Bible tells us that grief and loss, uh, to grieve death and loss, because it seeks to, it helps us to do, sorry, we're called to do so with hope, though. We're called to grieve and yet to not lose hope. These two things are supposed to stand somehow parallel. And so that means uh, one of the first hopeful things we, we come to see is that grieving, strong emotion, is not against God. It's not sinning. Nowhere in the book of Job does, does God say, Job, you should have shut your mouth. Job, you should not have been crying. Job, you should have bucked up and been tougher by faith. Never does God say that. Job experienced pain across the full spectrum of humanity in these two bad days, in his family, in all of his possessions, and in his body. And friends, some of us desperately need to hear and to know and to accept this, that your pain is real and should not be buried. It is real and should not be buried or denied or hidden. That pain in your family, the sibling rivalry, rivalry, the marital discord, the divorce, the physically and verbally abusive parent, The death of a loved one, these are things that must be grieved in our families. It is not a sin to grieve this. It is not wrong to acknowledge it, to be upset about it, to cry out about it to God and others. 
the pain in losing your possessions from the house fire or the burglary that makes you feel unsafe, or when someone intentionally broke your favorite toy, or when just by, by accident your work is erased from the hard drive, when identity theft or financial schemes take your money and your personhood. These things must be grieved. It is not a sin to grieve this. It is not wrong to acknowledge it, to be upset about it, to cry out to God and others about it. The pain in your body when we or those we know face grave illness, cancer, acute or chronic pain from injury or birth defect or genetic mutation or disease or drug-induced addictions or sexual assault must be grieved. Why? Because what happens in your body matters. We know this because Jesus came back in a body. He resurrected, not as a disembodied spirit, but as a fully embodied God. The body is something that he knows and cares about. What happens to you in your body matters. We, and so the body matters to God just as much as the soul. And so it is not wrong to acknowledge what happens in our bodies, to grieve it, to be upset about it, to cry out about it to God and to others. Grieving is not sinning because grieving is also longing for tragedies not to be realities. Grieving is not sinning because grieving acknowledges the great value of what God has given to us in the first place. Jerry Sitzer is a professor, a college professor, and he lost his wife, his mother, and his youngest daughter in one car accident, three generations of women in his family at once. And he was working through just terrible, terrible grief, obviously, overwhelmed with emotion, undeserved suffering. They were hit by a drunk driver. And he was grieving, but as he grieved, he started to see that his pain was also a gift. It was something he didn't want, and at the same time, it was a gift because it was a gift to even feel. And then feeling those things, it was a way for him to acknowledge that the pain of loss is so severe because the pleasure of life can actually be so great. The pain of loss is so severe because it demonstrates the supreme value of what is lost. When we lose something valuable, it should hurt because it's valuable. And God made us that way to actually not want the loss of valuable things or valuable people. This is the kind of world that God gave us, is one that actually has a full spectrum of emotion. And so grieving is not sinning. Not only that, but this supreme value that we have in our lives is why things are painful. And that also is why grieving does not negate worshiping. So it's possible not to sin when grieving, and simply having strong emotions is not sinful, but there's an even more positive side to grief, and that is that grieving doesn't negate worshiping because these things aren't opposites. This is great news for those of us who are coming from places or families or churches or backgrounds or communities or just within our own selves that have taught us that we shouldn't grieve because somehow if we grieve, we're denying that God is good. And so to grieve is to say, well, I'm not trusting God's goodness, and therefore uh, I should not be sad. But you see, in this one verse, Job is grieving and worshiping together at the same time. And what does it mean to worship? The word here, worship, it is literally uh, to fall flat on your face on the ground, 
prostrate yourself is what they'd say. Face down in reverence or submission to someone superior than you. Job is able to both express sorrow and honor to God at the same time because he recognizes that God is still greater than him. And though he may not know why this suffering is here, he may not have great reason yet to understand it. He yet knows that he can grieve and he can honor God and that that means he can take his grief to God. When we face undeserved suffering, worship begins not when we understand every possible reason for our pain, but when we understand that life still belongs to God, and so we choose to honor him. We honor him because even what we lost reminds us of the supreme value of the good things that Scripture tells us he already gave us in the first place. Job is acknowledging that all the good he had was from God to begin with. And so... This is, of course, where we begin to struggle, though, isn't it? Can I really be expected to worship God when I am grieving? Can I be expected to worship God when good and beautiful and joyful things get taken from my life? Is it worth honoring God when there is such undeserved suffering on the earth? How can I be sure he's worth honoring if he permits evil like Satan and grief and undeserved pain? This is the crux of the question that Job and I would argue all believers and all people actually face, and this is what the Bible would refer to as a temptation. And that brings us to that second thing, undeserved suffering forces us to face temptation because it's actually very hard for most of us to know what it looks like or even want to worship or honor God when there is pain in our life. So this is what happened. Undeserved suffering forces us to face temptation. Job experienced terrorist attacks and natural disasters that overwhelmed him with grief, but the story we read shows that these things were not just random events. There were unseen conversations in heaven that produced Job's very bad day on earth. Let's read verse 6 and 7 again. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. When we face undeserved suffering, we might not only ask, why God? But we might also start to ask, what kind of world is this anyway? What kind of world do we live in that undeserved suffering is a part of it? And Job 1 and 2 shows us an incredible and challenging reality about how the world is governed. What we just read is that there's this group called the sons of God, or we can translate it angels. They're the same thing. And so uh, these are superhuman rank. They're not people. They're angels. They have superhuman powers in some way. The Bible talks about them often. And we see that they form a divine council or like a heavenly cabinet. Just as the President of the United States would hold a cabinet meeting every morning, uh, the cabinet members of the executive branch of the United States government can serve in an advisory role. So this is an analogy, which means it's going to fall apart at some place. God doesn't need advice if he's God. So they're not here to give God advice. But another thing that the executive branch does is to serve an executive role. The president has an agenda, and the people, like the Secretary of State or the Secretary of War, have to carry out the agenda. That's what they do. That's the tasks and assignments that they've been given. And when it says that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, it wasn't just like present themselves wasn't they had a cosmic fashion show or 
uh, a heavenly talent show. They weren't presenting themselves that way. The, the phrase really means uh, to attend a meeting to which one is summoned or to come before a superior ready to do his will. This is what it, they would use that phrase to talk about coming before a king. And so it's saying God is this kind of king. He has a cabinet, and they come before him, and so he has a bunch of cabinet ministers. We literally use that word in the United States. Cabinet ministers, they go and do the work of the one who is ranked over them. This is the same idea as what's happening, apparently, in heaven. And God summons his ministers, like an American president might call his senior staff to an early morning meeting in the Oval Office. But what is shocking to many of us, maybe rightly so, is that Satan comes in among them. Satan comes in, and none of the other angels uh, say, hey, what's he doing here? Uh, we, we actually see the same description happen twice, right? We read it twice, chapter 1, verse 6 through 10 or so, and chapter 2, verse 1 through uh, 6 as well. The same words are used, the same description, the same kind of conversation happens in heaven. This is a, this is a pattern. This is a normal part of the reality that God in the spiritual world seems to live in. And so what that means is Satan being there is both normal and it means that he has a role to play. Oddly enough, we might even have to say Satan is a minister of God, which sounds insane, so let me explain. It is Job's actually, uh, it's very striking because in Hebrew, at least, the definite article is used, like the definite article being the. So it's, it sounds awkward in English, so we don't often translate it this way, but it literally just keeps saying throughout Job, the Satan. And it really is kind of like the secretary of state. The Satan is a role. It's a title. It's a position that this evil spirit carries. And his, his name means adversary, enemy. And so that's what he is. His role is to be the adversary to God. He's chosen that role himself, and yet God hasn't kicked him out of the council. And this is what's happening. When God says, where have you come? from where have you come? He's not saying, again, hey, how'd you get in here? He's not saying, where you been, Satan? I don't know. It's not that God doesn't know. What the question means is he's saying, uh, it's like the president asking his cabinet for a report. So where have you come from? What have you been doing? Have you, what, what have you been working on? And so literally God is asking this lying, deceiving, even evil spirit what he's been up to. And this isn't the only time in the Bible this happens. You want another example? Go to 1 Kings 22, where a prophet sees a lying spirit be sent out by God. The, the spirit lies, and yet God still sends them out to do a certain role in the world. The best example I can think of, uh, I couldn't think of one in the American form of government, but I did find one in the British, in British government. I don't know what that says about them, but so I'm sorry if you're British. I have to use this example. There's, I don't even know if this is true today, but in the past, there was a role that was part of the Queen's Council or Cabinet that was called Her Majesty's Loyal Opposition. Have you heard that? Have you heard of that before? Her Majesty's loyal opposition. And literally, there was someone in the government who was tasked with taking down the government. That was their role. And the queen or the king or whoever was in charge, they would have this person on their cabinet. And this person's job was to try to find all the flaws in the government and take it down. Except that at the same time, they were called her loyal opposition, which meant all of this was still in subservience to the queen, and it actually made the government stronger. 
Why? Because you have someone sitting right there who's trying to mess with your government, and yet you can watch them do it so you know where the weaknesses are. Now, again, this is an analogy that breaks down because we're not saying that God has weaknesses in his government, but to us it appears that way because Satan's there. And what Satan is tasked to do is to poke holes in God's way of doing things. He is God's loyal opposition. And the great thing about that is this. Satan is just God's dog. When he gets sent out, when Satan says, I want to go do this to Job, God allows it to happen, but he puts a leash on him every time. Satan can do no more than God allows him to do. So even though God allows it, he yet can only do what God allows him to do. And this is why this matters to us and why we're thinking about this whole way the world is governed. Because do you know what a government is called when it has no opposition ever? A tyranny, a dictatorship. To not have the ability to go against it is actually to be a tyrant. And this shows us that God, in one sense, despite the fact that we should truly probably hate that there is evil there, that God allows Satan to have these interactions with him, at the same time, we should be grateful because it means God is not a tyrant and that he is absolutely unafraid of opposition. He is unafraid of even evil because he can rein it in however he wants. This is the way that the world is governed, because even evil works for him, and not because he wants evil to happen, but because he allows people to have a choice. The choice can always be either good or bad, and Satan chose bad. You can read his story through Scripture. He is a fallen angel, one who hated God because he wanted to be God. But even then, he still works for God. So God can take even an evil spirit and make it turn out for good. This is what's happening in the book of Job. And that's what, the, what it means when Satan says, you know, God says, where have you come? And Satan says, I've been going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. That's kind of a vague answer. It's kind of like Satan is a, a teenager, and God's like, where have you been? And he's like, out, <laughs> doing stuff. Stop asking me. And God's like, okay, he knows what Satan is doing because Satan has a purpose. He's also going to and fro, up and down. He is methodically going about the earth. And what does God suggest? He says, well, you've seen Job, haven't you? Because apparently Satan's role is to go around looking, uh, looking around to find out, are there any people who really actually love and worship God? And God says, I know some. Did you find them? And Satan says, yes. Satan, uh, have you considered that my, serb jo- my servant Job uh, is literally for me? Yeah, he's wealthy, but he worships me. He truly loves me. He loves me from the heart. That was what it says. God confirms the very first, bro- uh, first verse of Job, which talks about Job's character and his love for God. And it leads us to the heart of the book and the heart of the temptation, which is starting in verse 9, which says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Oh, yeah, but does Job fear you for no reason? You've protected him, you and his house and everything that he has. You've blessed his work. His possessions have only increased. I bet you, though, if you stretch out your hand, if you let me harm him, he will curse you to your face, God. Satan is malicious, and he longs to see good things fall apart and fall down. And God says, give it a shot. 
Satan admits that he has noticed Job's godly character and his habit, but he believes Job only appears this way because of his prosperous condition. And this is the question of the entire book of Job. Does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job worship God? Does Job follow God? Do we care about God for any reason other than our own comfort, wealth, possessions, status, or things on this earth? Does anyone really love and honor God simply because God is God and worthy of honor and obedience and worship? That is the question of the book of Job. Or is there some other reason? Here is God's most loyal follower on earth, but Satan believes Job serves God not out of conscience but out of convenience. That we worship God not because God's worth it, but because we get worthwhile things from God. And we want the worthwhile things that we might not actually want God. This is really hard because Satan claims that Job isn't truly worshiping God. He's just putting on a show. And the question that the book elicits for us then is, is that true of me? What about when I've faced life in general, but maybe especially undeserved suffering? Do I honor God because honoring God makes uh, God like me? Give me good things? Give me what I want? Or do, do I honor God because he's just simply God? He's powerful and owns the universe, and he made everything. Satan actually has a point, and it might just be that this is the temptation we face whenever suffering or difficulty or grief comes to us. Satan is always seeking to put you and I on trial. And the trial is, do you really want God? Because when you don't, Satan wins. And I have to admit that when I read this passage and kept studying it and thinking about it, I actually had to come to a place where I agreed with Satan's logic. That if you really, if you really want to know whether I love God for God himself and not just for his stuff, you'd have to take away some of my stuff to see if I still worshiped God. That was hard for me to face, but I think that's the question that I'm being asked to face. And I have an example even. I can, uh, many examples really, but here's one. Uh, back when I was 24, uh, I, I was a soccer player my whole life, and I was playing soccer. This was just for fun. I was done with college, just playing for fun. Uh, but I, I played a full game, was having a great time, and then right towards the end, at a full sprint, uh, hit a divot in the ground that was really bad, and it twisted my leg, and my knee came out of joint, and it ripped through the ligaments. You heard the pop, and that was the ligament severing, and my ACL was just gone. And uh, as I hit the ground, this is like a split second, right? I already had so many thoughts in my mind. I'd seen this happen to soccer players before. I'd heard, I knew what that was, and I knew that it wasn't good. And I knew that it was a long recovery, and it was painful. And, and you might not ever really come back the same. Before, I would say, as I hit the ground, literally a thought came sweeping over every other thought, and it drowned everything else out. I had just hit the ground, the injury just happened, and clear as the pain searing through my knee was, God doesn't love you. Do you know that experience? When something bad happens and your initial thought or somewhere in there, you just know, God doesn't love me. God's out to get me. God brought this. God took away something I love, 
and he brought pain to my life. God doesn't love me. And in that moment, for the first time probably, I realized that this physical injury was never just going to be a physical injury. It was going to be an emotional one and a spiritual one. And I was going to have to go to war. Because even though I said I followed God, and I really did, I think, that yet at the same time, something in my heart still immediately said, (laughs) when bad things happen to you, it's because God doesn't care. Or even God wants it. That kind of deceptive lie is what Satan does. That's what he's doing as he roams up and down the earth. That's the kind of thing that he wants to see us experience so that we doubt God. C.S. Lewis said it this way after he lost his wife to cancer. He said, Not that I think I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, oh, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. And this is where we come to that third thing. This question and the temptation comes before us that undeserved suffering forces us to face God. Here's the thing about God. Back in Genesis 3 is where we see the first temptation in the entire Bible, and Satan's right there. He's the one bringing it. And he comes to Adam and Eve, the first two people on the earth, and he comes to them, and he, uh, what does he do? He tells them, hey, God's holding out on you. Eat this thing, and you will gain more knowledge. You'll be more like God. You'll become like gods yourself, is what he's essentially saying. And Satan tempts them. And they, as soon as they hear this, they think, wow, wait, maybe God doesn't love us as much as we thought. But if I do this other thing, maybe I'll have the same kind of things I want from God. So I'll do it. And so as soon as Satan comes to people, we stopped loving God because we believed that he might not really love us. But you know what happens throughout the book of Job and really the entire story of the Bible is this, that Satan came to people and we stopped loving God when he he tempted us. When Satan goes to God and tempts him, God keeps loving people. God is convinced that his love is strong enough, that his covenant, when it says, my servant Job, that's an expression throughout the Old Testament. People have that expression when they're in covenant partnership with God, which means they are loyal to one another. It's a mutual relationship. God's loyal to them. They're loyal to him. God says, that's for real. He didn't doubt and didn't disbelieve and didn't walk away from people like we walked away from God. That's the kind of God that he is. And this is the amazing thing about it when we come to face God. Look, if you wonder at how awful it is to live in a world where someone like Satan exists and you struggle with what we've seen of God and you still wonder, how could a good God permit Satan to do terrible harm to Job or to me or to my friend or to cause injustice or destruction in the world? Then we must also remember this. We also live in a world where a resurrection happened. We don't just live in a world of undeserved suffering. We live in a universe of undeserved grace. We don't just live in a world of undeserved suffering. We live in a world of undeserved redemption. Because how do we know that God hated the death of Job's family and the suffering of Job? How do we know and trust that God 
uh, isn't afraid to let his friends suffer because he wants to show his own goodness and glory. Here's how. He himself entered the suffering. That's the story of Jesus. God himself comes to earth, and he enters into the suffering. And this is a great mystery, friends. Some of what we have to do when we face God is face the mystery that he's really superior. He's asymmetrical to our reasoning about suffering. We think, well, God's either good, but he's not powerful because he can't help me, or he's powerful, but he sure isn't good because he would help me if he was good. He would take it away. He wouldn't let me suffer. But God is asymmetrical to these things. He doesn't, it's not a one-to-one equation that we can work out that way. God's equation is, let me show you a greater mystery. I will take evil, and I will put myself under it, and I will still win. That is the story of the gospel, friends. I want a God like that. I want to worship him because he's worthy, whether he gives me what I want right now or he gives it later or he doesn't give it at all because he's just great. He comes into the world and he takes on evil, suffering, and death. He dies on a cross, which looks like weakness, but he rises from a grave, which is utter power. And so he took all of it on himself, friends. We don't just live in a world of undeserved suffering. We live in a universe of undeserved grace and redemption and restoration and hope. This is a God who knows every tear, but he doesn't just know every tear and eventually promises to wipe them away. He eventually promises to wipe them away. That's what the end of the very last part of Revelation, right, is God will wipe away every tear. Suffering will be no more. Friends, in every kind of suffering, your faith is attacked. But Jesus did not abandon us despite all of his own suffering. In fact, it's why he came, to suffer for us so we know that we have a sovereign God who has a plan not to abandon us in our undeserved suffering, but to lift us up into his undeserved grace and glory. If Jesus didn't abandon us when he was suffering for us, do you think he will abandon you even if you suffer now? Friends, let's pray, and then we'll take communion together. Father, we thank you that you are the kind of God who uh, even your governing of the world is uh, something we can't fully fathom. But this morning, we rejoice in you that Satan is on a leash, that though he has chosen against you and you didn't immediately crush him, you rather would let even evil be put into the service of good so that you could come and ultimately crush it on that cross. Because it says in Hebrews, Lord, that Jesus, you were tempted in every way just like we were, but you never sinned. And so you went to the cross unjustly. You faced undeserved suffering so that you could give us your undeserved grace. There's nothing we could have done to earn that from you. You just simply want to give it. Lord, help our hearts to accept it. And when we, uh, when we fall to the ground at times, crying out, Lord, you don't love me because you've taken something from us, we yet pray that you would help turn our eyes back to you and to Christ to see on the cross we have another tangible expression of you do love us. It's why you came and it's what you're about. We praise you for that. And we thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.